The New Testament reading is taken from Paul's first letter to Timothy. Chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarrelling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a, a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Thanks, Kate. Morning, everybody. Does anyone else want to have a go at this? <laughs> this is a tricky passage, is it not? Dealing with some highly sensitive issues. It's sensitive culturally because our culture now views male and female roles as interchangeable and basically just a matter of choice. It's sensitive ecclesiastically because I think most of us will know churches in which women teach and lead, many of whom are really godly women and whose gifts have been used to bring people to faith. And let's face it, it's sensitive personally too because this isn't an easy passage to understand and all too often it has been applied in a way that has distressed and denigrated women and therefore has damaged the church. So needless to say, I'm conscious of walking on eggshells here. The literature on the subject is vast and so what I have to say will no doubt be inadequate. Some will think I've misinterpreted the text and others will not want to hear what it has to say in the first place. And so in lots of ways, I think many of us might uh, just want to skip over this, not least myself, and save ourselves a lot of bother and uh, maybe just dive into an encouraging psalm instead. But we can't. The Bible won't let us because these verses here in the Bible, are written for our encouragement. They're there to help us, not to hinder us. They're there to help us know better how to do healthy church family. That's why they were written in the first, first place. The Apostle Paul is writing here to his protege, Timothy, and the church that he's leading at Ephesus. And in chapter 3, verse 15, he tells us exactly why he wrote this letter. I am writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. I don't know what kind of family situation you grew up in. Sadly, I think our experiences vary, but whatever your experience, 
Wouldn't you like to be part of a family where there is peace and good order because everybody knows how they ought to behave? Where the living God is honored and where everyone seeks to uphold the truth of who he is like they're a pillar or a buttress that holds up a ceiling. That's what Paul says that God's household is to be, his family, the church. And every word of this letter is therefore written to encourage this church and our church too in that direction, including these tricky ones in 1 Timothy 2, which is one of my first heading this morning is pursue godly behavior in the church family as there were clearly both men and women behaving badly in this church. Let's look at the men first in verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, says Paul, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. The then in that sentence refers to what Paul has been saying in the previous seven verses, that we should be praying for everyone, including those in authority, so that we can live peaceful, quiet, godly lives, because God wants everyone to be saved. God's primary evangelistic strategy for his church is the godliness of his people. Yet it seems here in this church, <laughs> these men were being anything but godly, stirred up, no doubt, by the false teachers who we saw in chapter 1 and who we're going to come back to in chapter 6. They were getting sucked into quarrels about words which were causing constant friction so that people in the church were being deprived of the truth and Paul says to them then please there please will you stop arguing and bickering with yourselves instead pray with pray in holiness in other words pray seeking diligently to be in the right with God and others as you come to the church gathering rather than praying with anger still bubbling up, lingering in your heart. That's the men. What about the women in verse 9? Likewise, Paul says, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now he's not saying braided hair and jewelry and, and, and dressing nicely or caring about your appearance is, a, is necessarily a bad thing as a woman. No, no, it's a cultural manner of dress that's being highlighted here. Some have suggested that it showed that these women were dressing with unnecessary extravagance, like the rebellious new women in Rome who they aspired to be like. Others have said that it may actually have been that they were copying the seductive appearance of the local temple prostitutes. We can't really know for sure. But clearly the way that they were dressed was just as distracting to the congregation when they met as the bickering amongst the men was. So Paul challenges their priorities. He says, don't dress to impress like the world does. Instead, Dress yourself in godly character. Make every effort to do that. 
with gospel good works. Now that's what Paul was saying to the Ephesians back then. But remember how in verse 8, he says that these are his desires in every place. In Ephesus, 60 AD. And Benwell, 2022. It's easy to, it's easy to forget what, what year it is these days, isn't it? <laughs> Paul is calling men and women everywhere to a higher standard than the culture around us. And clearly these verses are not saying that only men can be argumentative and have anger issues. So I think it's legitimate for us to ask ourselves, men and women, when was the last time you backed down and apologized and admitted that you were wrong about something? Anything? Or do you just love to win an argument way too much to do that? And who might you actually be in conflict and dispute with this very morning in the church, let alone out in the world? And that dispute might be damaging your reputation, but also the reputation of the churches. And therefore, are you making every effort in prayer and in practice to seek peace and good order in that relationship? And likewise, to use Paul's word here, can I ask us all, again, both men and women, what desire to impress is currently distracting us from pursuing godliness and gospel good works? Whatever the challenges for us from these verses, they remind us that appearance and its motivations are not a matter of indifference to the living God. When people gather together in the church, Fashion comes and goes, doesn't it? Although, clearly, just looking at Ben and myself up front this morning, it would appear that green jumper, uh, blue jeans, and brown shoes are de rigueur amongst men these days. Uh, But uh, we know that's not the case. And the key thing for us to get is what never goes out of fashion. And that's godliness, isn't it? And so pursue it whatever the cost Make that your priority, not just for your own sake, but for everyone's, because God wants everyone to be saved. And that's our priority. That's the first thing here. Here's the second. Protect the God-given roles of men and women in the church family. As Paul continues in verse 11, let a woman learn, which might already have you bristling and feeling a bit patronized, but please see just how revolutionary these words would have been for the first hearers of them. In a culture where education was seen to be wasted on a woman, for a woman to be encouraged to be part of a gathered congregation of both men and women to learn, that was simply mind-blowing back then. And Paul knows that God's word is for all. So he instructs Timothy to ensure that the church is a setting in which a woman embraces her calling to be a disciple of Christ just as much as the men are. So he says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, which is, after all, the best way for anyone to learn. I was talking to someone earlier on in the week 
about uh, when I started learning to drive age 17, 18, and how basically <laughs> my dad took me out to teach me to drive, and I learned very little because I was way too busy arguing with him all the time. <laughs> so it took me another five years to get around to taking some driving lessons with the proper instructor. And it was only when I submitted myself to learn from his tuition that I got anywhere. Now, before you accuse me of trying to put a positive spin on this word submission here, I know that this sounds offensive to our culture. It sounds like being a doormat, doesn't it? But it's actually used to describe union in God the Trinity as the Son submits himself to the Father and the Spirit submits to the Son without any sense of inferiority there. And so it's used in the Bible in all of our relationships. God has ordered our relationships to reflect his character so that we must submit at different times and in different places in our lives. But again, without any sense of inferiority. So a child must submit to the authority of their parent. But that doesn't mean that the child is any less important than the parent. And an employee must submit to their employer. But that doesn't mean that they're any less important than the employer. No, we are all made in the image of God with equal value and dignity. But nevertheless, in different contexts, we will each have different roles to play. So in some relationships, we will be called to exercise loving leadership of others. But at other times, we will humbly submit to someone else. So for example, a woman might exercise authority over her children in the home and over her Bible study group because she leads it and over the male GPs at the medical practice of which she's a senior partner. But then she may also at other points be in humble submission to the government or her husband or the leaders of the church. She's equal in status to everybody to those that she leads and to those that she submits. Nobody is more important than anybody else. And in all of our relationships, all of our relationships, both in leadership and in submission, our example is no ordinary human being. It is Christ himself. We follow Christ's example of exercising authority self-sacrificially for the good of others especially for their salvation, because remember, God wants everyone to be saved. And we follow his example of submission as he earnestly obeyed, uh, as he obeyed his father in the Garden of Gethsemane, earnestly expressing his opinion, oh, oh, Father, if there's any other way to do this, please take this cup from me. But what was it? He says in the end, yet not my will, but yours be done. Submission does not being some, mean being some mindless doormat. Jesus expresses his opinions with incredible honesty and great emotion to the Father. And yet, he still submits to his loving leadership. So I don't think it's wrong to see verse 11 as a 
positive statement, correcting years of misuse of the created order. Verse 12, however, is a restriction, is it not? And it appears at first glance incredibly negative. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, it's not quiet in terms of women always having to be silent in church. Paul makes it perfectly clear in his letter to the Corinthians that he expected women to pray and prophesy in the church gatherings. And neither is it that women shouldn't ever be allowed to teach in the church family. As elsewhere, he encourages all of the congregation to speak the truth in love, in congregation. So, of course, we should all be doing that in our small groups and in one-to-ones. And after the end of our formal gatherings upstairs here, downstairs over tea and coffee, as we look to encourage and build one another up in love. Or indeed evangelistically, where hopefully we should all be looking for opportunities to teach the Bible to anyone who will listen. And we need, as in Titus 2, to have older women teach the younger. Paul himself received instruction from Priscilla and Aquila when he first became a Christian. And Timothy was taught the gospel by his grandmother and his mother. There is lots of teaching ministry for women to do. And there are plenty of places for for women to take the initiative and lead within the church. However, there are two signature activities of the teacher-shepherd reserved exclusively to men. One, the authoritative teaching of God's word to the mixed adult congregation. And two, the spiritual oversight of God's people. Which incidentally limits the role not just for women, but also to the vast majority of men. And not just any man at that, as we're going to see next week in chapter 3. The qualifications are incredibly high and taxing for that role. Now at this point, you might say, but hold on, wait a minute, Ken. Why are you assuming that this teaching here about women isn't just cultural, kind of like it was in those first few verses, 8 and 10? Well, this can't just be an Ephesus thing. As we read in verse 13, that it is grounded in the very order of creation. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now, mention of Adam and Eve brings Genesis 2 into view, doesn't it? It's a reminder of the order in which the first human beings were created to be in relationship with God. And Paul says that order supports a difference in role which permeates the whole of Genesis and the rest of the Bible, a pattern that runs throughout it. Adam was formed first to provide loving, self-sacrificial leadership. And Eve, we're told in Genesis 2, was created to offer the support that he needed as a helper And that word is not derogatory for one minute because it's used throughout the Bible for God himself. In fact, when Jesus tells his disciples that he's leaving to head back to heaven, but that he's going to send his spirit 
to be with them as the paraclete. That word means helper. It is not derogatory, and therefore we must recognize that men need fantastic help, the fantastic help of women. It is not healthy for men to go solo and try and do things by ourselves as we are so often tempted to do. But neither is it wise for women to rebel against the created order, which is what verse 14 is all about. And Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So now the focus switches to Genesis chapter 3. And it wasn't that Eve was deceived because women are somehow more susceptible to Satan's falsehoods. After all, Paul frequently tells everyone that they, they mustn't be deceived by false teaching. And here in Ephesus, it seems to be that it was the men who'd been taken in. No, the issue here is more that, more that Satan tempted Eve into taking the lead in an unauthorized way. Which is why Adam is rebuked for standing idly by, listening to her and following her lead when he knew it was wrong. And it is then Adam, not Eve, who is held responsible for human sin when God comes to the garden to pronounce his judgment on the world. Folks, the point is not about whether, men are, or whether women are more gullible than men. All men are better leaders than women. But that when God's created order of leadership is deserted, it creates disorder and damage. Okay, so what does that mean for us today? What does it mean for us in practice? Well, I think when it comes to working this out in the structures of the life of the church, I don't think we can be too rigid with this. The principles, I think, are really clear, but there are quite a number of gray areas. So there's going to be some debate about how we best represent those principles. And I know that different churches will draw the line in different places. As far as I can tell from the New Testament, it would be something like this. One, we need to enable women to flourish within the family, within the church family. Mabel, Elsa, Fiona, Sarah, Mahini. The names might not mean a lot to you, but these are all women who have taught me an incredible amount in my life so far at different stages. And we want women as well as men to flourish and use their God-given gifts within the body of Christ. We already have women here who have taken on significant roles in ministry leadership and on the staff team. And in doing so, they're essentially doing the deaconing type work that we're going to come and have a look at in chapter 3 next week. Women are called to do that ministry. And we must recognize them for that. And as we set up our new trust later on in this year, we want to make sure that women are strongly represented on that, just as they are on our staff team and our new church council. We must hear the voice of women in our church. We would be fools to ignore their counsel. 
But the way to reflect the difference in God-given roles in the church will be to say that, secondly, the congregational preaching and leadership role should be undertaken by qualified men who under God take loving responsibility for the life of the church. And in doing so, I think that applies the Bible's teaching about God's created order most clearly. Fiona, my wife, said to me the other day, and I did ask her permission (laughs) to quote her, so it's okay, you can uh, breathe a sigh of relief about that. I'm not uh, going rogue. But she said that one of the things that really helps her when she's struggling with this issue is to realize that like Eve, this is one no in a garden full of yeses. So there's incredible opportunity out there. And so the male leadership of the church must not prevent women from flourishing. But it should encourage also men not to just take a back seat, look for an easy life, but to step up. Here's how author Kevin DeYoung, the American pastor, scholar, and um, an author as well, he puts this challenge well in his book, Men and Women in the Church. He says, finally, I believe that in all of this, the most important message is not what women cannot do, but what men must do. Almost every pastor will tell you that the women in his church are more spiritually minded, more interested in reading their Bibles, more eager in growing in their faith, and more open to serving in the church. No doubt many times where women have ventured into areas of teaching authority reserved for men, they did so not out of a rebellious heart, but because men had already relinquished their God-given mandate to spiritually lead, protect, and provide. It is all too common for the reversal of the garden to play out in our churches. Yes, women bear responsibility in that reversal. But as we saw with Adam, God holds men ultimately responsible. So just as we don't want to be a church full of suppressed women, neither do we want to be a church where women do all the work. And men just sit back and watch the footy. Or worse still, as was the case here in Ephesus, get distracted by arguments and juicy controversies. That doesn't sound like a healthy church, does it? And remember, that is what this is all about after all. Paul is writing to Timothy and this church to encourage peace and good order in the household of God. And a well-ordered family is a good, safe place to be. It's a great place to be. But I know it's not necessarily an easy place to be. I've talked to a number of women this week as I prepared this sermon. So I have some understanding of how hard many of you find this and how painful it is to work through. And so in a moment, we're going to hear one woman's experience of how she's been wrestling with these issues. But as we try to do that together, the key thing for us, I think, is like the first readers of this letter, is that we ultimately make sure that this issue doesn't distract us from our task of uniting in worship and witness of the name of the living God. 
and bearing testimony to the gospel of Christ because God wants everyone to be saved. And so before we hear from Laura, we're going to sing again to just lift our eyes to that bigger picture. So let me encourage you and invite you to stand and sing.